fundamentally, all of the chatbots that are out there, except for ours, are chatbots without a brain. Ours is the only chatbot with a brain. And basically, if it doesn't have a brain, if it doesn't have a cognitive engine, if it relies on deep learning, machine learning, big data, it's fundamentally down the wrong path. So it's essentially a waste of time going in that direction. All the energies that are being put into current chatbots are basically a waste of time. And it'll have you know less and less of an improvement. You just can't brute force intelligence like that. You have to have the right architecture, or you know what DARPA calls the third wave of AI. So the challenges we're facing is really just being a relatively small company is having enough resources to develop our brain, our cognitive architecture. Welcome to the Conversations on Applied AI podcast where Justin Grammons and the team at Emerging Technologies North talk with experts in the fields of artificial intelligence and deep learning. In each episode, we cut through the hype and dive into how these technologies are being applied to real-world problems today. We hope that you find this episode educational and applicable to your industry and connect with us to learn more about our organization at AppliedAI.mn. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone, to the Conversations on Applied AI podcast. Today on the show, we have Peter Voss. Peter is the founder, CEO, and chief scientist at AGI Innovations and IGO. Peter coined the term AGI back in 2001 and published a book on artificial intelligence in 2002. He's a serial AI entrepreneur, technology innovator, who has for the past 20 years been dedicated to advancing artificial general intelligence. His experience includes founding and growing a technology company from zero to a 400-person IPO. In 2008, Peter founded Smart Action Company, which offers the only call automation solution powered by an AGI engine. Peter is currently focused on commercializing the second generation of his AGI-based conversational AI technology called iGo. It is implemented using a brain-like cognitive architecture, also known as the third wave of AI, which I'm super excited to talk more about. Peter also has a keen interest in the interrelationship between philosophy, psychology, ethics, futurism, and computer science. So thank you, Peter, so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, I'm super excited to have someone with your deep experience on the program to talk about AGI. Could you maybe tell us a little bit more about your path of getting into artificial general intelligence? Yes, certainly. So I started off as an electronics engineer, uh, started my own company, then fell in love with software, and my company turned into a software company. And mm. that's a company that then grew very rapidly. I developed an ERP software system, just loved programming, and became quite successful at an IPO. So that, that was awesome. It's really when I exited that company, I had enough time available to think, what big problem do I really want to tackle next? And what struck me is that software isn't very intelligent. It's pretty mm. dumb. And, you know, I was very proud of my own software, but whatever the programmer doesn't think of, you know, it, it'll just crash or have an error or not, not have any common sense. So really right. trying to figure out how we can build intelligent systems. And that's how my whole story on AGI really started. Cool. And so this was early on, right? I mean, this was, could this have been 20 years ago or so? We started thinking about some of the shortcomings. Yeah, actually more than 20 years ago. I actually took off five years to study intelligence because I figured that I really needed to understand what intelligence is, many different aspects of it to be able to design an intelligent system. So I studied epistemology, you know, theory of knowledge. How do we know anything? What is reality? What is our relationship to reality? Also, what do IQ tests measure? How do children learn? How does our intelligence differ from animal intelligence? All of those different aspects of intelligence to really deeply understand that. 
and of course, to study what other people had done in the field of AI of you know over the decades. So it's a culmination of that research that I really came up with a a design for an intelligence engine in 2001. As you said, um, I coined the term AGI together with two other people, and and we wrote a book on the topic to really differentiate ourselves from what pretty much everybody in AI was doing then and is doing now, and that is narrow AI. So we really wanted to get back to the original dream of artificial intelligence, you know, that when the term was coined 60-odd years ago. The idea was to build a thinking machine, you know, a machine that can think and learn and reason the way humans do. And we felt in 2001 that the time was ripe to give this another shot. You know, that technology, hardware and software technology had advanced sufficiently to have another go at that. But it still was pretty immature at the time, right? There wasn't a, we're not talking about GPUs or, or really a lot of data at that time. I mean, what, what have you seen that has changed now over the past 20 years? Surprisingly, I don't believe that hardware limitations are the biggest thing. I think it's having the right design and having obviously enough effort put into it to be able to solve the problem. Of course, as we get more processing power, you know, more memory, things become easier. It becomes easier to set up tests, to run tests, to train systems and and all of that. But I don't really think that that's sort of the biggest thing. I think we could have made a lot more progress even 10 years ago or 15 years ago if more people had actually been working on AGI, you know, rather than just narrow AI. Yeah. Well, and how do you define narrow AI for our listeners maybe that aren't familiar with that term? So, as I said, the original vision of AI was to build a thinking machine, a brain that can basically learn the way humans do. We are generalists. We can learn lots of different things. You know, we can learn to play chess. We can learn to do medical diagnosis, to, you know, play music or or whatever, all sorts of things. So that's our general intelligence. And, of course, we are also tool users. We can learn to use tools to extend our capabilities. Now, that was the original idea of AI, but then that turned out to be really, really hard, especially 60 years ago. I mean, when I started writing software, we were working with machines that had 16K of memory, you know, and we managed to write programs that could do useful things. But to now work with 16 gigabytes of memory, and you know, is obviously much, much easier. So it turned out to be really, really hard to build AGI or to build you know, thinking machine. So what happened to the field of AI is they said, well, we can solve particular problems. You know, we can take like chess playing. And that's, of course, the famous one, IBM, uh, Deep Blue beat the world champion. But what I've found, what I discovered is that it's really the programmer's intelligence or today the data scientist's intelligence on understanding the problem and understanding how a computer can solve it. So it's their intelligence that's really turned into code to solve that one particular problem. So you now have the ingenuity of people that can build a chess playing machine, but it can't do anything else. It can't even play checkers. Right. It's so narrow and hence the term, right? Yeah, and so it's narrow. But actually what is more important, I only realized this a few years ago, is that it is external intelligence. So it's really the programmer's intelligence that you are turning into code to solve that particular problem. Whereas what you want is you want a machine that has the intelligence to figure out how to solve the problem. And that has the ability to learn how to solve lots of different things. That's AGI, that's artificial general intelligence. But there's some other requirements as well that the current approaches of deep learning, machine learning, big data simply don't meet. You need to be able to learn interactively one shot. Anyway, we can talk more about that. 
We definitely will. Definitely will. I do want to dive more deeply into that. You got me thinking about just, yeah, if you were to write a program, Peter, and I were to write a program and we don't pick your favorite language of choice, we'd each have our own little nuances in there of how we would program it ourselves. And I think that's maybe what you're saying is, is now the programmer, I mean, there's just, it's just logic. It's just sort of like dumb logic that a program is going to put in, but you'll do it slightly different. I'll probably do it slightly different. You know, we might optimize it one way or the other, but this idea that you would actually flip the whole model around, you know, when I start to talk to people about machine learning, there's no longer an if-then-else statements in here anymore, right? It's the whole pact of it, you're just feeding it a bunch of data, and the machine kind of decides on what the right answers are, correct? Well, except one needs to be careful when you start using words like decide. It doesn't actually decide. I mean, the big data approaches, deep learning, machine learning, are purely statistical systems. They basically simply do pattern recognition and based on the data you feed them and and whatever feedback you, you give them, they basically create categories or in some cases sequences that they can generate. But there's no thinking going on and there's no learning going on in the sort of traditional sense. That's why also these systems are inscrutable. They can't explain what they're doing. It's a completely blind process and, and of course, an opaque process as well. And AGI, the whole idea behind that is to completely open that up. I mean, how would that be different? Is You're actually saying it would actually would make some decisions. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So what AGI is to have a thinking machine or an intelligent machine, you really need to start by saying, what does intelligence require? The kind of intelligence we're looking for, you know, human-like intelligence. There are certain hard requirements that you have, and some of them are you have to have memory. You know, people aren't classed as intelligent if they can't remember something, you know, they, they heard two sentences ago, if they were paying attention, you know. Mm-hmm. So memory is a crucial part of intelligence. If you didn't have memory, you couldn't really do intelligent things because you'd have to keep experimenting and, and learning. So memory, short-term memory, long-term memory, the ability to reason, to make sense of what you're hearing, to be able to use context Because things and events can have a very different interpretation depending on what the context is. Mm -hmm. You know, are you at work at the moment or are you at home? Who are you talking to? What do they already know? What are you trying to achieve? What do they already know? You know, what knowledge do you have? All of those things impact how you actually react to a particular stimulus. So being able to take context into account to be able to disambiguate if you're not sure, you know, to be able to kind of probe or experiment to interact with the world, to be able to learn in real time with limited resources, you know, not infinite resources, but with limited resources. So all of these are requirements to have an intelligent system that you could, for example, use as a personal assistant or an elder care assistant or a call center assistant that that could really handle, you know, more complex things that aren't just scripted. So you need that intelligence, you know, to, to remember what somebody said two sentences ago, you know, or what they said last year. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of your focus is, at least, you know, and I said during the intro um, around call centers, but maybe you're taking it up to the next level, I guess, with your current company. Yes, absolutely. So from a commercial point of view, I mean, I'm personally, I've always been very interested in technology, but also in business. I love the business side of things. I don't just want to understand things or discover them. And, you know, then I wouldn't care about whether they're actually practical or used. Now, I, you know, it's very important to me to also see that what I innovate has a practical utility, creates value. And that's, of course, in the business side of things. And of course, you need to be able to create value 
generally to be able to get funding to do your research and development as well, you know. So they all come, come together. So yes, at the moment, we are focusing on working with large enterprise companies to help them in whatever, whether it's external facing, customer support, sales, whether it's internal helping in HR or in IT or in their sales department. Those are the kinds of things we're doing. But we're also working with uh, companies where we're helping them create intelligent conversational AI for uh, training, for example, VR or AR training systems. Uh, We've had interest from car companies to have intelligent, hyper-personalized interactions with infotainment and that the car gets to know you, basically. Sure. Medical diabetes management is something that's a, a pretty obvious one. But in the longer term, I see us also being able to offer a personal assistant to the individual. In fact, we have a a special name for that that we registered. It's a personal, personal assistant. Uh. Uh, And it really should be a PPPA because of the three different meanings of personal. So personal, you own it. It's yours. It serves your agenda. It's not owned by some mega corporation to serve their agenda. So personal ownership. The second one is personalization so that it's customized to you. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's personalized. It gets to know your preferences, your history, and so on. And the third personal is that it's personal in, in the sense of that it's private, so that you decide what your assistant shares with whom. Sure. So that's the kind of vision that we have that we'll, we'll offer these personal assistants that can then be utilized at work or at home, You know, can communicate with each other, and they'll shield you and protect you from these other bots and things out there. Some of the other things around your home, you mean? Some of the some of the Google Homes and the Alexas and all that type of stuff? Yeah, your personal personal assistant can deal with them, you know. And also be a little angel on your shoulder to keep you out of trouble, you know, to say, hey, well, you know, maybe you want to think about this first uh, before you jump in there, you know. Oh, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I think if people had somebody watching over their shoulder asking you, you sure you want to do that? I think people would make a lot better decisions. You mentioned... The conversational AI, you know, all the technology around that has been, people have been hard at work, you know, doing that, it feels like over the past decade or so, and it's getting better and better, but you're right, it is still pretty stupid, you know, and the fact that I can ask it something once, but it doesn't remember the context of stuff earlier on, Right. that's one area you're trying to tackle. Are, are there other areas that you're kind of, I guess, where you're finding the most interesting challenges, where you think we need to go, where this technology needs to get better at? Yeah, so I'd like to make the point that, uh, you know, when you say a lot of work is being done in, in chatbots, th- that is true. I believe Amazon employed 10,000 people on Alexa. I mean, the mind boggles, you know. But fundamentally, all of the chatbots that are out there, except for ours, are chatbots without a brain. Ours is the only chatbot with a brain. And basically, if it doesn't have a brain, if it doesn't have a cognitive engine, if it relies on deep learning, machine learning, big data, it's fundamentally down the wrong path. It's essentially a waste of time going in that direction. All the energies that are being put into current chatbots are basically a waste of time. And companies are finding that out. We talk to large corporations uh, all the time, and they've tried to implement chatbots, and almost always they are highly disappointed in what it can actually do. Because they're using big data technology is basically the quantity of data, not the quality of data that they focus on. And what you're finding is you can train the system with 10 times as much data. And I mean, you get things like GPT-3 now, which has you know, what trillions of, of facts. I don't know what fantastic number. 
you can have 10 times as much data and it'll have you know less and less of an improvement. You just can't brute force intelligence like that. You have to have the right architecture or you know what DARPA calls the third wave of AI. So the challenges we're facing is really just being a relatively small company is having enough resources to develop our brain, our cognitive architecture. You mentioned the third wave of AI. I mean, what's the first two? So yeah, DAPO did this presentation a few years ago where they talk about the three waves. And the first wave is basically fundamentally sort of logic approaches to AI, which were very prevalent, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s expert systems, but it's basically based mainly on formal logic, but also some statistical approaches. But it's, it's sort of the logic mathematical approach to AI. That's the first wave. And then the second wave is basically hit us like a tsunami about nine years ago, is when people finally figured out how they could use build neural networks that were actually very useful and very competent. And in many areas where statistical approaches are appropriate, they are fantastic. I mean, it is a revolution. Uh, Speech recognition has very, very significantly improved image recognition. And of course, targeted advertising. And that's what's driving this. You know, it's worth trillions of dollars to be able to target advertising more accurately. And this is really what's driving it. And that's why deep learning, machine learning is sort of the only game in town. So that's the second wave is machine learning, deep learning, um, statistical approach. The third wave is basically this cognitive architecture approach is saying, what do you need to provide intelligence and to build a system that inherently has all of the components required to create an intelligent system? Makes a lot of sense. So we're just in the dawn here of the third wave. Yeah. And you guys as a small company, and that's usually where it starts, right? It's, it's startups trying new stuff. The big guys are, are more focused on maybe more established markets, uh, anything like that. But this, this third wave is really pressing forward. It's exciting, super exciting. Yeah. What does somebody do in, this is what I like to ask everybody that's on, that's on the uh, programming, like what's a day in the life for you? So I'm still very much involved in, in programming. So I program every day. I, I still love it. But then obviously I run the company as well. So, you know, it's just managing teams, hiring people, focusing on wherever problems are, customer meetings, potential customer meetings, marketing. You know, it's, it's across the board. I'm really involved in all aspects of the business, but I'm also very hands-on. That's good. What, what are you writing in? C-sharp. C-sharp. Yeah. We actually started using that 2001 when it was sort of still in, in beta or it was just released. And I love the language. I think it's just a very efficient language, you know, both in terms of programming efficiency, but also in terms of running efficiency. So we're very happy with it. And, and now that it's become available under Linux, you know, that obviously helps a lot with commercial deployment. For sure. Cool. Well, I, you know, I'll include notes here during the show. So I'll, I'll put a link off to your website and everything like that. If you, you guys have careers posted at all or reach out to you directly? Reach out to us directly. From time to time, we are looking for engineers. We have a fantastic team, and we're still at very much at the size where everybody is basically just so thrilled about working what we're working on. We're actually building brains. We actually have an intelligent system, and that we're not just doing another dumb chatbot, you know, for for somebody or another advertising optimization algorithm or another Uber for dog food. So it's great to have this kind of environment, you know. And those are the kind of people we're looking for is people who are really excited about what we're doing because that's kind of the, the team spirit and, you know, how we can really shine. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. 
as I think about conversational AI and chatbots and just AI in general, what do you think about it taking over, I guess, a lot of our jobs, right? So now we don't need the call centers anymore or other areas you're talking about. Do you see us? Do you see humans sort of phasing out of the, the picture? Or I guess maybe what do you see our role in the future of work going forward when these cognitive AI systems are put into place? So, yes, eventually, it's sort of from a marketing point of view, you often hear companies say, we don't replace humans, you know, we augment them and so on. But to be quite honest, I mean, that's basically marketing talk. Companies don't like to admit that what they really want to do is reduce the number of people in their call center. Now, what has happened, in fact, is that people in call centers haven't been reduced because more and more people are using these channels. So what we've seen over the last 20 years is, in fact, that, yes, the simpler tasks have been automated and that will continue, but there hasn't actually been a reduction in call centers. I don't see that continuing, though. I think for now that, you know, that is still happening because automation is still so limited, so, so dumb still. But in the longer run, of course, as you get closer and closer to human level intelligence and AI, it will replace a lot of jobs. I think it's a bit disingenuous to believe otherwise. You know, you, on the one hand, have intelligent systems that are more and more intelligent. And AIs have such a lot of advantages over humans. I mean, you train one AI and you can make a million copies of it. You know, you train one neurosurgeon or AI researcher or, or, or whatever you know, work 24-7, you know, and, and, and so on, you know, just consistent performance. So, yeah, that will happen. But then, you know, when people feel that, you have to look at the future of AI as a world with radical abundance that we will have because it will make things that we want and need in our lives so much cheaper and more available. So if you ask people, would you like to win the lottery and you know, be able to sit on the beach or pursue art or travel or whatever, who would say no to that? You know? Now, whether people will actually cope with it, you know, a lot of lottery winners don't do so well, but you know, that's something we will need to learn, basically, how to really use our time when we don't have to work anymore, when, when we can work and can do the kinds of things we want to do. So I think that's a future to look forward to. And especially if you have your little angel on your shoulder that can help you with psychological problems, with relationship problems, with information, whatever. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think people think about work as I have to manually sit down and do a job here for eight hours a day. Like that's sort of been ingrained, I think in our industrial revolution, you know, that people go to work and they do it. And I think what you're saying maybe here is that there's going to be a shift away from that. Like, it's okay to be on the beach, relaxing. It's okay. There's just the whole future of how, how you do it. It's okay to be more creative, a little more like flowing because we have these cognitive AI systems that are going to take care of a lot of the brute force stuff that we used to do in the past. You know, I think where, where humans will always be wanted is in human relationships, you know, and we will be able to spend a lot more time figuring out how to have meaningful relationships and how to help other people have relationships to build communities and things like that. That's hard and we're not doing that well at this stage, you know. When you mentioned communities, yeah. I mean, I, I have an applied AI group and we meet here in the Twin Cities in, in Minnesota every month. But the other thing that spun off from that is this podcast. And, you know, I don't, as you were saying that, I was thinking in my head, you know, would an AI be able to do this? Maybe in the future, right? Maybe I, I don't need to have these one-on-one -on -one conversations. I could actually have a conversational AI do that. But I think that would 
you wouldn't create as tight of knit of a community as as, as I think we've have currently built with these personal relationships. Yeah, of course. I mean, while machines can already and will be able to sort of fake emotions, they can potentially be very good psychologists that can help people to have the real emotion, your interaction with another person. Because, you know, it's our biology that gives us the feelings we have in our gut and our heart, wherever it is, in our embodied biological bodies. And, you know, machines are not going to have that. There's no reason for them to have that. Sure. So for people that are looking with regards to like sharing information, people that are looking to get into this field, I mean, do you have any advice, I guess, you know, what are even some skill sets that you guys are hiring for? Like, you know, kind of rewind your mind back here when you first got into it. What are some sort of tips that you would give to people? Well, actually, let me say something unique about our company is that two thirds of our employees are actually not engineers. They're not programmers. They are what we call AI psychologists. It's a profession I invented. So they have a a training in linguistics and cognitive psychology. And they basically train IGO, they train our, our brain. They teach it, they come up with a curriculum, basically teach it. Now, we also have to do some programming, but I'll say that's only about a third of the company where we actually do the underlying programming. So in in our company, people with linguistics training, cognitive psychology, on the engineering side, it's basic programming skills, you know. And of course, we also have have some tools that we need to develop and, you know, web development, front end and so on, in addition to the actual brain development. That would be kind of the normal skills. In fact, we don't particularly look for people that have an AI background because that can often be counterproductive. They have too much to unlearn because, you know, we have such a different approach. But more general advice, uh, and that's from my own experience, I actually don't have any academic training at all. I'm completely self-taught. So that's my own kind of bias and what has worked for me is, to me, the biggest thing is to get stuck in. And, you know, the sooner you can actually work with the stuff, you know, whether it's privately or you can intern at a company or somehow get, you know, actually to do the stuff. I mean, it's it's basically that to me is the most important. Often academic credentials and what you learn, a lot of it is just isn't really going to be very useful. You know, it's it's getting your hands dirty on, on the actual whatever technology you want to work on, I think is most important. And I mean, the best programmers are those that love doing it, that do it as a hobby, you know, and not just that they learned it at you know, university. Of course, you can get much better structure and, you know, better techniques and learning it professionally is, is certainly an advantage. Yeah. I mean, make yourself the dumbest person in the room is what, I, is what I've always sort of done whenever I've moved to different jobs is I've always tried to send a, find people who can help mentor me along the way. What do you do outside of your professional life? Do you have other fun stuff you like to do or is it conversational and uh, AI all the time? Well, pretty much so. You know, running a startup is pretty much a full-time job, so seven days a week. I am very interested in futurism, life extension, and so on. So I do spend a bit of time, you know, philosophy as well, ethics. I've written quite a few articles on ethics. You know, one of the things that I really wanted to understand is what consciousness is and what free will is and things like that. So I try to have started a few discussion groups over the years. So I like to have philosophical discussions and, and hang out with people who also have an interest in futurism and radical life extension. And then my other hobby, which of course fits in beautifully with life extension, is motorcycles. I love riding motorcycles, so that's obviously very good for my life extension regimen. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> um, yeah I, still love riding, I still love riding my racing bike, so. Well, good. 
I was trying to remember the name of the guy who there's been a lot of research recently and I'm just completely blanking on his name, but I mean, just one of those people that says we could live to be, you know, 200 years old. Yeah. Ray Kurzweil or? Yeah. Yeah. No, um, but, but then there was a guy. Aubrey, more Aubrey, Aubrey de Grey. I'm losing his name, yeah. but yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I knew that he's written some books recently and he's out of, um, I think he's out of the UK. Um, yeah. so. Well, Aubrey, Aubrey de Grey is, uh, he, um, he's very actively working on age reversal. So rather than just trying to slow down aging is to say, his approach is how can we repair our bodies, you know, so that they actually get rejuvenated? Because otherwise, if you're just slowing down aging, you know, you just become more and more decrepit, basically, and you're just stretching that out. What you really want to do is you want to be able to repair and rejuvenate. And he's pretty much a leader in that field. Very worthwhile looking at what he's doing. I just looked him up. It's David Sinclair. I said the UK, but I think he's actually out of Australia. Another, I think the English, the English accent threw me off, but you probably heard, heard and read a, a lot of his stuff, huh? Yes, correct. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, like I say, I'll include notes to all this stuff here as people listen to the podcast. They can take a look at any of it. Is there anything like that I missed, Peter? Anything else that you'd like to, people to know about you, your company? Anything else you want to share? Yes, of course. Have a look at our company website, igo.ai. And you know, we are very actively looking to implement our systems with large uh, enterprise customers. And we have quite a few at the moment. That's what I focus in. And, you know, anybody who's interested, you could uh, look at my essays in medium.com. Just search for Peter Voss. And yeah, anybody who has an interest in it, feel free to contact me as well. Peter at igo.ai. I'm easy to find on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Perfect. Peter, well, I appreciate the time. And uh, man, you shared a lot with us. Obviously, you're a leader in the field, and I know you'll continue to do some great things here as we get into the third wave. How far do you think this wave is going to go? You know, as we're winding down here, how far is the third wave going to go until we hit the fourth wave, do you think? You think we have this, this third wave here is going to last for another couple decades? No, I think the, the third wave is it, basically. Because once you have the right architecture, and we're finding this, you know, now having worked on this for, you know, 20 odd years, is we just need to improve what we're doing. I don't have any kind of sense that we fundamentally need to use a different approach, you know, like quantum computing or, or whatever. So I think the third wave is it. It's just, you know, and people ask me how long before we get to human level intelligence. I mean, we're still a long way away from that. I don't measure it in time. I measure it in dollars. I mean, yes, it will take a certain amount of time, but I think we could have human level intelligence in less than 10 years if enough effort was put into it. So, yeah, that's sort of where I see that. I think we are on the road to having human-level intelligence. It's teaching the system all of the common knowledge that we, common sense knowledge that we have. It's really hard. You know, that's one of the big challenges that we just learn such a lot growing up in the real world. You know, our childhood and just interactions with other people with the real world, we just learn a lot. And getting that knowledge, that practical common sense knowledge into an AI, you know, it's a very difficult task. And that's basically part of what we're working on. Sure. But you still believe it's possible. Oh, absolutely. And your quote about, you know, I read this actually off of your, off of your LinkedIn profile. It, it was a quote by Oren Harari. I think it says it's uh, electric light bulbs did not come from the continuous improvement of the candle. Correct. So I think the thinking behind that is, is we got to do something completely new. I mean, it it's probably feels like the dollar thing you're talking about. You know, Edison wasn't just improving the candle. He was taking it to the new level. Correct. 
And, you know, as you mentioned, the big companies are not likely to have that kind of innovation. You know, it just doesn't happen that way. Like big oil tankers, very difficult to turn them. All of the top leadership in the big companies, AI companies, they are experts in deep learning, machine learning, statistical approaches. That's their expertise. That's what they're looking to improve. And, you know, it's new startups that basically change the paradigm. Who would have thought that tiny little Amazon startup could ever hope to compete against Barnes & Noble, you know? Or tiny little startup Facebook could ever hope to compete against Google, you know? Or Google themselves when they were little startup. You have to really think very differently and have to have a different approach. And big companies just have too much baggage and too much invested and too much to harvest their existing investment. You know, that's a focus. For sure. Well, wise thoughts, Peter. I appreciate your time again. Thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks for having me. You've listened to another episode of the Conversations on Applied AI podcast. We hope you are eager to learn more about applying artificial intelligence and deep learning within your organization. You can visit us at AppliedAI.mn to keep up to date on our events and connect with our amazing community. Please don't hesitate to reach out to Justin at AppliedAI.mn if you are interested in participating in a future episode. Thank you for listening.